This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. I'd like to begin with a story broken by BlogTO. There's a campaign to have the Mutso family name removed from hospitals in the province following this week's very tragic news about the suicide of Edward Lake, whose three children and father-in-law were killed by drunk driver Marco Muzzo in 2015. A Change.org petition started on Monday and now has just under 10,000 signatures. Those who are signing want to remove the Muzzo name from facilities like the DeGasparis Muzzo Tower at the Mackenzie Vaughan Hospital, which was named because of a massive $15 million donation to Mackenzie Health Foundation back in 2017. Now, this raises a lot of questions. Should the whole family be blackballed because of what one of them did? And if the campaign is successful... Or even if it isn't, will this deter other rich people from making huge gifts in exchange for naming rights? It is now time to tune into the town, and I'd like to welcome Deputy Mayor Anna Bailau and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, here in the flesh in studio. So good to see you. Hi, David. Howard, nice to see you. Thank you very much. So it's great to have you in here. It's great to see people in here. Uh, but let's begin this one with Karen Stintz, because Karen, you need a nonprofit, and I'm sure uh, you would like a $15 million donation. Well, there's no question. And, um, but, you know, and this is where, again, the petition is actually aimed at the wrong party, because there probably are legal documents that uh, dictated the terms of the contribution, and if it was a $15 million contribution in exchange for, then the hospital, unfortunately, is legally obligated by that. So the petition really needs to be to the family. And it's become, um, you know, again, it's it's a legacy question, because when these types of donations are made, they're made to causes that are close to the family's heart as part of a, a legacy building. And the family really needs to do some exploration. Is this the kind of legacy that they want to leave? The fact that it was their son, it wasn't. It was a member of the family, not the whole family, but nonetheless, it was their son that was involved in this horrific accident that took now four lives. And and how did they now want their legacy? And so it will really be a decision for them. And I'm sure the hospital will abide by whatever they come to. But in terms of 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 needing to do something, I think the family is obligated to to do something in, in this regard. Really, well, David, what do you think? Well, when um it, it, it seems to me, first of all, that, uh, that, that the horrendous experiences that families had, Lake families had, needs to be borne by all of us and, and understand it. But I think I have to come to the conclusion that that uh, the, the act of one member in one generation does not, we don't hold the, the others accountable and, and guilty. So it seems to me that, that that would be the wrong thing to do. Anna Bailau? Well, I, I think Karen is right that, that there are some legal uh, agreements oh, that sure. probably is going to be very hard to deal with, um, and and I do agree that the sins of all are, are not uh, the sins of one are not the sins of all. Um, I, I think this could be a time for reflection from the family on uh, what actually um, other donations and involvement and causes um, they could be getting involved. Um, I think there is a time to, for for that to happen, and given uh, this this petition, um, I think it is an important time for them to reflect on it. Um, but but I, I, I do agree as well with, with, with David, because the sin of one is not the sin of all. There's a whole family uh, that made that donation, um, and, and 
um, I think there's, it's a time to reflect uh, and a time to move forward on, on what they do with the legacy when, and future uh, donations as well. Um, they, but they have to come through to speak on it. I think they, they can't just stay silent on this issue. Well, you know, on the other hand, if they were, for instance, to take up uh, some kind of cause related to drunk driving, it would look, it would look like they were very deliberately trying to clean their name. David, what do you think? Yeah, I, and, and, and there's an instinct that would you'd want to say, do something that's appropriate that shows how the feelings that toward the family that's been hurt, uh, and I understand that. But but it, to me, I guess there's a sense these days that if you don't like it, you cancel it. And so it, it, I I know that's put too hard, but but I think you cannot you cannot it's never ending if you try uh, blame one generation for the acts of another. It's interesting. You know, I I talked to some people who are very involved in this type of work, major gifts, and uh, the consensus was, you know, uh, in the United States right now, the Sackler name is being taken off of a lot of buildings. They're the owners of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, and in courts of law, they've been found guilty of you know, largely causing the opioid epidemic because of the way they pushed those pills. Uh, But the connection is that it was that money that they used to make the donations as opposed to a case like this, Karen. Yeah, I can see that. But, you know, again, when... um just to take a city example, you know, generally, generally speaking, there are some exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, we don't assign naming to any public space until after an individual has died. And the reason we don't do that is because however great they were, uh, there's always that risk that there's going to be uh, some reputational harm, and then suddenly you're unnaming something that you've named. Uh, just to so, say, Karen, I think that was reversed. Remember, we have uh, Kyle Lowry just getting names and some other people yeah, just yeah, the yeah. other I week. Think, yeah, okay, So, by, but by and large, right? And, and that's, yeah. that was the logic behind it. And, um, you know, things, of course, may have changed, but but the logic behind the naming was always just just do it after you can actually have a full reconciliation of the person's contribution. And so as a, as a charity, for example, right now, um, I would, if I had the Muso family come to me with a, with a large gift, I would bring it to the board and we would have a real serious discussion about how we treated that gift and what we would name and how we would then be able to explain to our, the members of our community how that got accepted. And so it is, to Anna's point, the family has got to address it. There, there, is, no, there, there is no way they cannot, um, given the public outcry that's occurring and will grow the longer they don't address it. And so how they address it, it may not be removing the name. It may be um, offering namesakes of, for the family that was, that was killed, something along those lines to at least acknowledge the harm that's been caused. But they, but they cannot stay silent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is, is uh, really quite interesting. Anna Bylaw, do you think that it will cause a kind of naming chill? Um. It, it, it's possible. I'm, I'm, I think that people will think about it. But these the, these situations with naming rights, uh, this is it's not the first, and and it won't be the last. With where we see many many nonprofit and public sector organizations facing challenges with naming um, naming things. I mean, um, we ju- we just had other situations in the city of Toronto. So um, that's why uh, these things have policies that are carefully drafted by institutions. And usually when big donations come like this, they are taken to the board. There's a a lot of due diligence that is done. And I think when we have a situation like this one so public, there's going to be a lot of organizations and a lot of uh, families that are in this business that are going to be rethinking this again. There's no question about it. I have no question that a lot of organizations like the one that Karen leads is, is going to be thinking about what are, what is the policy that we have? How, how, how are we protecting ourselves from these situations in the future? Yeah, you know, uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, in terms of the family themselves, you know, when, when I see that name, I don't think philanthropic family supporting a hospital. I think of the drunk driver. So they may themselves 
want to rethink it. But the one thing about this that I find particularly disturbing, David, is that so it kind of erupted on social media and we did try to get in touch with the people starting it. And it's like, oh, no, they didn't really want to put themselves out there, but it's just so easy to put something up on social media. Uh, and it disturbs me that, that you know, all kinds of uh, nasty things happen by people who are, you know, essentially hiding in social media. Sure. And I, <clears throat> I think that's part of, part of the story here that's really important to remember. And that is that you have to stand up for, if you're demanding other people do certain things, you should just stand up and attach your name and face to it. That, that seems to me not just manners like my mother required. That just seems to be a moral part of a moral code. So the idea that you can 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 actually bring things down or 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 hurt people and 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 do it with face, without face or name that's cowardice. So uh, I, I I don't trust it, and I and I it may well be that the that the uh, the, the Muzzo family will find in its heart to want to do something in some way, but I would let them do that and don't badger them. Let them understand it and let them do what they think they might want to do. They're not connected, however, to, to, the, to the great difficulty caused by their son. Well, uh, they, they will forever be connected to that, and that's, uh, that's just the way things but I, I, but are. I don't, think, I don't think we should help in that regard. Yes, they're going to be remembered, and, and, and that, that's part of the guilt that they have to bear for which they did not commit a sin. And so, so don't, to me, I think it's, it's really wrong to push it on them. Okay. Uh, turning to another subject now. And so last week, I was really surprised when Toronto was named a host city for the World Cup. I had not heard a scintilla of opposition to this. And I remember previous bids, and there was bread, not circuses. And there was one city councillor that voted against it, Gord Perks. And then there was this very interesting editorial in the Globe and Mail saying, people, are you really sure you want to spend all this money on that and all this money that that price tag is before cost overruns. And, and I would bet a vast amount of money that there will be cost overruns. Uh, David, you've been involved with previous bids. What do you, what do you think? Is this so good that nobody should object to it? Oh, no. <laughs> no it's a difficult one. And, and, uh, uh, both uh, Anna and Karen uh, well, on council, they would understand there's enormous pressure uh, to participate in these kinds of public events like uh, like Olympic bids and, and uh, soccer, world soccer bids and so on. Um, you, you really do, though, these days have to say to yourself, what's the value of that in relation to where the money could go elsewhere? And I know there was only, I think, uh, Councillor Perks, who, yeah. who was the only one who, who said no. And I have to say that, uh, well, my heart would be with those who are saying, I love, I love soccer. Great. It's wonderful stuff. But we have many needs in this city that, that, that the Olympic bid or, or say the, the, the world soccer folks have nothing to do with. But we have a responsibility towards. And you just need to walk the streets and listen to people's concerns. And you'll find out that $100 million or whatever it may well be. Uh, way be, more than that. The way more than that can be better spent. So I think... Uh, uh, I think I probably would have uh, been with Gordy Perks. Okay, well, Karen, what what do you think? I mean, we're expanding BMO Field. Do we do we are, is is that even going to be used afterwards? And and we had Councillor Cole on yesterday. He was in the, on the pro side, saying it puts Toronto on the map. We're going to bring business here. It's like really, I I don't quite believe that. Well, you know, I think there's a combination of factors that have that are uh, causing some excitement about this announcement. And, and one is that, you know, for the first time ever, I think Canada is doing well in soccer um, on the world stage. And, you know, we've got Alfonso, what's his name, Alfonso? Um, Uh-oh. Yeah, I can't remember his last name, but, you know, he's got, he's got a heart condition that he's sitting out. But, he, you know, he's just this incredible player. Alfonso his, Davies, thank you, Z. Alfonso Davies, thank you. And he's just this incredible player, and he's Canadian, and he... It, it, so there's there's a general excitement, and, and I think as well it is um, it, it's reflecting the nature of the shift around sport and sport culture in a city like Toronto, where at one point we may have just been a soccer a hockey town, but now we're not. We're a basketball town, we're a soccer town, 
um, even more than a baseball town. And the, the Jays are drawing great crowds. So I, I think there's a number of things that are shifting that are that are causing this kind of bid to be more well received than they may have it may have been even four or five years ago. Anna, and oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, and I and I say to council's credit, like I think you know, Anna, you you and I were on council at the time. We we didn't explore an Olympic bid because we thought that was lunacy. But but I, I think this one is a bit different. And Abailao, I mean, your Portuguese heritage, that's a, a heritage that is uh, very pro-soccer, very yeah. enthusiastic about it's, soccer. <laughs> it's a tough one because the love of soccer comes through me, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people um, uh, feel that way, that it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sport that we're so used to celebrate on our streets and finally having that ex- excitement being here present uh it's like okay we're bringing it home so i think that um a lot of of the uh our local uh communities and sport organizations because also not only is is you know tfc doing better is the canadian team doing better you see more and more uh small soccer teams like we have a shortage a huge shortage of uh soccer fields because there's so many uh uh, soccer academies and kids involved in schools. And I think that's, that, that is important. It's, it's the investment that comes. It's the uh, promotion to the city that comes. It's, it's, uh, um, what happens to the sport, uh, in the city and the region, to be honest with you, uh, that comes from having these events. Um, and, and I think as a whole, I think it will be a very positive experience for, uh, for the city. Hmm. You know, that editorial started with complaints about public washrooms that aren't working, garbage in the streets, and and just really basic services that and, are and not I, happening. I agree. And when I see these big um, uh, uh, events, um, I also see the opportunity of putting our best foot forward and best face forward to welcome the world in here. And when we had the Pan Am, one of the things that uh, I think the best things that came out of it was actually all the affordable housing that got done after the Pan Am Village that got got uh, got uh, to be uh, discontinued for the Pan Am Games. I think there's a lot of good stuff that can come that are expedited because these events actually put like a focus on a lot of these things. And I think that we as a city now need to say, okay, we're going to be receiving the world in here. It shouldn't have to come to that. Let me put it this way. It shouldn't have to come to that. But it will force us to focus on all these things that we have to say, we need these things to be done. We're receiving the world. It's like when you have your guests in here, you know, you shouldn't have to have guests to, you know, to have your house ready to, to receive anybody. But we know that it kind of forces us to have it ready. And, and I think we need to focus on that because after the games are gone, we all benefit from a lot of these things. And like I said, with the Pan Am Games, all that affordable housing that was built in there, it was a great outcome. It was a great outcome, a great legacy. Yeah, but, you know, those things, David, that are not happening. So first of all, we've got we've got labor shortages. We have people who uh, I dare say may not have been working full tilt from home. Uh, and you make choices when you spend money, and that's a lot of choices to make. Well, for sure. And, and I, I think that th- those things that, let me call them housekeeping in the city, there used to be a phrase years ago, um, and I haven't heard it recently, but it used to be said that uh, Toronto was uh, exceedingly well run, though sometimes badly governed. Uh, and, and what that was was a testimony that we looked after the household. We looked after all of those things that people use on a daily basis and depend upon them. And they're, they're, not, they're not ragged. They're not uh, 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 ill-prepared. They're not late. They're on time. And, they're, and they're, they're useful to people. Those are the things that people expect will be done. Affordable housing coming coming from the Pan Am Games. I've on a number of occasions have congratulated Anna on the work that she did with affordable housing. So I take nothing away from her record. But if we need those kinds of events in order to do affordable housing, then shame on us. We should be building affordable housing without them. And I mean, I'm talking about really small things. That aren't happening. Oh, no, you know, sure. overflowing, disgusting washrooms. Litter, well, washrooms, litter boxes. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, you want to throw out something instead of leaving it on the street. I mean, Karen, um, yeah. is isn't that a matter of money and choice? Yeah. So this, this is where I kind of get cynical, and I think you know when we're 
that has nothing to do with money. There's plenty of money that the city spends to um, the various departments to get the city to look how it should look. And so I don't, I don't think it's a money issue. I think it's a cultural issue where maybe there's not the motivation that there, we might have had in the past to take pride in the work that we do and present the city the way we want to be seen. And so when I hear about choices, there is no question that there's choices. But I do not believe that if we didn't bid on the World Cup, that suddenly we'd have another $600 million to fix the other issues at AL Toronto. Because building permits aren't going to get expedited any quicker. Washington's aren't going to get open any faster. Because it has. I don't believe that that has anything to do with money. That has to do with culture. That's the city. Uh, Anna, do you agree? I agree. I, I, I agree that... Uh, uh, it, 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 there's a, a bit of culture as well. And in terms of the money, um, I also, you know, sometimes you need to spend money to get more money. Um, and I think going back to why this bid is being received so well, I think there's a lot of people that um, think it's time. It's time that, you know, that we start uh, being proud and loud. Um, and uh, these things, that, that we need to get done. Um, the, people want them done. They want the culture to change. They, they're demanding more and more. You see people demanding those things, uh, but they also feel like it's time that uh, Toronto gets louder uh, in, in the world stage scene. I, I, I sense that out there. It's like, why can't we just be bigger? Why can't we just be bolder? Why can't we be out there? Uh, and um, I, I, I feel like Torontonians are also demanding that. I think one of the reasons it, it it was that it just kind of flew under the radar. Nobody was uh, nobody kind of remembered that it was coming up. And uh, what do you think, David? Well, I note that the Economist magazine uh, yesterday uh, or two days ago um, listed the great cities of the world. Uh, and what was interesting is that in the, in the top ten were three Canadian cities, which is really 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 a tremendous record. Um, and uh, that was and they Van- were? Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So Toronto was eighth. Vancouver was third, and, and Calgary was fifth. Now, um, it seems to me that I'd like to be known for what Toronto is known for, and the reason why people see it is in the top ten in the world. And, and part of that's really got to, a large part of that's got to do with the way in which we've done with the fundamentals of building a city, what makes it livable. By the way, the criteria is the livability of the city. That's what the, what makes a great city. And so uh, it, it seems to me that we need to pay attention to those things first. Now, it may well be that it is a matter of culture uh, and, and, and not money, as Karen points out. If it is, then that's an even harder problem. Uh, because um, we don't we don't need to run down or not allow uh, our our services to be um, not up to par in order to car- carry on um, with uh, uh, making sure that we've got a, a a reputation in the field of sport. So I'm I'm I, if I can sum it up pretty simply for me at any rate. Look after the fundamentals first, all right. And I mean, if you're sure they're really done well, and it's and as if it's a matter of culture, fix it. If it's a matter of money, pay for it. But then you go forward because what makes Toronto tick is its fundamentals and not its froth. Hmm. Libby, can I just say one thing? I think that we're also known around the world for our diversity and how we welcome and and receive people from all over the world to live here. But in this case, it will be a sport event as well. And I think this is a sport event that it was. It, it's now being very popular because of all the communities that are coming here, right? Um, government has, has been for, for decades. Is these yep. these are communities that have been here yep. for and a long time. Portuguese, Italians, Brazilians. I mean, I remember back at City TV when we started covering soccer, and you know, they go to College Street, and everybody was going nuts. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think that, I, you know, at the same way that governments spend lots of money, you know, doing the Sky Dome and other sports uh, uh, um, related uh, facilities and events and so on. Um, I think that um, uh, a lot of people support this because they feel very passionate about this and, and they feel it, it's a personal thing to, to a lot of them as well. Uh, I just want to pick up on this culture issue at the city, and I'm always a little wary that I'm going to say something that's really politically incorrect. 
but you know um i hear a lot of praise for for uh, municipal workers and a lot of them are fantastic but i really think that there were in a lot of cases where work did not get done during the pandemic and um uh david how do you fix that well i, I I'm, i've been so far a, a long time away from uh, city hall culture but but uh, in the two members you have the four members you have with us on this on this on this call uh, made excellent contributions I, it, it seems to me that the one um one thing that we need to have pay attention to is that the fundamentals need to be done every day. I'm not going to sound like a broken record, but it's the fundamentals that people depend on, and I think those need to come first. If there's money left over, I guess you can go after something like the World Cup. But I, I didn't see anything that told me what kind of process was involved, uh, what kind of diet, diet, uh, 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 debate occurred. I have no idea what the money's actually for. So the, the public is simply being asked to, to, to go for it, mainly because it's a big deal. And, and, and we're not sure what that big deal is. Um, and it's less to do with uh, some real, real fundamental things that the city requires and more to do with something you think you'd like to do if you had the time and money. Okay, well, I'm going to take, I hope, a very quick call from Rio in Mississauga. Hello, Rio. Oh, yeah, I'll get straight to the point. Yeah, basically in Toronto, I don't know what they're spending their money on because we had a windstorm four and a half months ago. And like in Etobicoke, the city refuses to pick up any of the broken branches, big, massive tree limbs on Kipling, the side streets, it's on people's properties on their boulevard to be covering the, the sidewalk. And I know people that I've talked to, they've actually had to spend the whole day with chainsaws and everything. And it's a city tree and they won't do nothing. I've called 311 personally about six, seven times. Uh, the two days after, because I drive around and say, yeah, such and such an address has it here. You go on Martin Grove. It's a disaster, and the city just doesn't clean up. It's, I don't know what they're spending their money on, because like, they have all these condos they've built the past 30 years where they're getting extra tax revenues. So there's something majorly wrong in Toronto. Okay, Rio, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people are worried about. Uh, we're basically out of time, so I'm going to go around the table and give everyone 20 seconds, starting with Karen. What would you like to leave us with? Oh, just I think it's, um, you know, I, I think that anything that brings the city together uh, is, is, is a good thing. And because, you know, when we were called to come together during COVID, we did, because we felt that we were part of a larger community. So when we think about events like even the... Um, the parade to welcome the Raptors, the World Cup, events that bring the city together have, have many, many positive events. Anna? Um, I'll just say that as we plan to host the event, let's plan about the legacy of this event for the city as well um, and, and how it will impact the city for the years after the event uh, as well. So it's, it's not only the five games, but it's, uh, it's actually how uh, we benefit as a whole. David, last word to you. No, I, I hope it's going to be an excellent event. People enjoy it the way uh, we're now talking about it. I hope it also prompts people to remind themselves that the city has fundamental needs. They need to be dealt with, whether it's culture or money, and they need to be dealt with well. And so maybe this uh, debate and maybe the discussion and the idea that somehow we can all gain by having a world-class event will remind us that a world-class city is a city that pays attention to its fundamentals. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have. And of course, we talk to our wonderful Tune Into the Town panel every Thursday. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, Anna Bailau, and David Crombie. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're following up on another story that got a lot of response, and that is those MCRs, medical condition reports. Uh, that are filed to take people's driver's licenses away. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we are going to follow up on another story that struck a real chord with our audience. It's about medical condition reports, MCRs, that doctors file to the Ministry of Transportation for patients that have certain medical conditions that warrant a suspension of their driver's license. Now, there are 
more than 35,000 of these a year. And according to uh, an interesting investigation series in the Toronto Star, there are some instances of abuse. Now, the most prevalent medical conditions for this are dementia, epilepsy, and strokes. We heard from a lot of people who had their licenses suspended. Often it was kind of a surprise. Suddenly you get this thing in the mail. Nobody has said boo to you. And even in cases where they agreed that this was warranted, they said that the process to get your license back was extremely difficult, lengthy, and expensive. So again, I'd like to hear from you. Have you or your loved ones had this experience? And uh, what was your experience? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Jason Perfetto, who is a family physician with Perfetto Savateri Family Medicine in Hamilton. Hi, Dr. Perfetto. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, how many of these would you say that you do in a normal year? Yeah, personally, I, I feel like I'm perhaps like in the, in the 10 to 20 maybe range, like maybe a couple of dozen, not a, a high, high number, but say like 10 to 20 per year or thereabouts. Uh-huh. And what are most of the medical conditions that prompt this? Actually, with, with your introduction there, I would agree. Um, the, the most common things, like, because you're going to find a difference between what's reported from the emergency department versus what's reported in the family doctor's office. For us in family medicine, a lot of it has to do with significant cognitive decline or a new diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia or various forms of dementia that would impair or interfere with an individual's ability to drive safely. And is it usually something that you notice or, or is it a case where the family might come to you and say, you know, we, we don't think dad should be on the road anymore? Yeah, it's probably a mix of the two. So collateral information or concern from family members or friends is, is a very common method in which we would actually receive information about somebody's uh, suitability to drive. Um, you know, similarly, even when you speak to people or there's new diagnoses of dementia or cognitive decline or issues with, for example, brain and brain function, uh, you, you would tell them or have a conversation with them in the family about safety and driving. So it really does come in from a variety of locations, family, friends, and uh, for sure what you see individually and what you observe in the office. What about conditions where they're reversed? I mean, even something somebody can have an eye condition and then they get laser surgery and it's fine. Uh, we were talking to one of our panelists, one of our colleagues, Peter Mugridge, and he said that in his 20s he had some episodes of epilepsy and his, his license was taken. But even back then... The process for getting it back was really difficult. It was expensive. And I can only imagine what it's like now after COVID when, you know, kids can't get their licenses in any kind of timely way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the, the most common example of a situation that's considered, let's call it reversible or perhaps a, a bit more accurate would be treated and stable is something like seizures or epilepsy, right? So that's a condition in which um, at the time, if, if you have uncontrolled epilepsy or you do have recurrent seizures, then driving can actually be very, very dangerous for you and for others. But it doesn't mean that you will not get your ability to drive back because if treated and if the investigations like the EEG and blood work and everything is stable after uh, a documented six to 12 months or thereabouts, then it actually is considered safe to drive. So that, that would be a very common let's call it reversible or treated or, or stable condition in which licenses can be reinstated and, and safe to return. Right. Um, I, I do agree. I, I think right now in the in this sort of post-COVID-ish era where there's a lot, of, like the, the passport delays, the, the driver's delays, there's, there's a lot of challenge with uh, getting that administrative work done. So that can lead to delays. Uh, I mean, and even at the best of times, we were having delays in getting things back. In, in my experience, though, if things are organized, and, and treated and you have information to provide the Ministry of Transport and, you know, like, like 
the EEGs and the MRIs of the brains and the blood work and all of these things are done and, and, re, and ready to report, then it's actually not too bad to reinstate a license. Hmm. Um, uh, that, that's not what I heard from our audience, but uh, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Jason Profetto about these MCRs, medical condition reports, and doctors are required to file them for patients if they think that person is no longer qualified to drive, that that person might be a danger to themselves or to other people on the road. And the most common conditions are, as he said, cognitive decline, dementia, epilepsy. Uh, There are also some eye conditions, of course. If you can't see, you can't drive. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, But there, there was this very interesting investigative series in the star and, and, you know, mental health conditions are also included sometimes and told a story about a woman who, you know, told her doctor she was depressed. And next thing you know, her license was suspended. Dr. Profeta, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I saw that story that, so the first thing I would say is that my, my instinct is I'm a bit surprised that that was reported um, in fairness, it, without knowing the exact details of, of that sort of interaction and what the medical presentation was. Like, so, for example, if, if someone has clinical signs of a major depressive episode or a major depressive disorder, that in and of itself would probably not preclude somebody from driving safely. However, if somebody presents with, you know, concurrent features of things like uh, psychosis or delusions or um, hallucinations or something of that sort, then it, it actually could be quite dangerous. And in, in the, depending on the type of mental health issue, there could be a variety of things that present. So I think it, it does depend. I've, I've never, that, that would be rare for me to, to, because of someone having severe depression, not allowing them to drive. I, I, I wonder if there's more to that story. I don't, I don't know, but uh, I generally would not report that alone. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Deborah here in Toronto. Hello, Deborah. Hello. You're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. I just wanted to add an opinion on what the doctor had said about if you have all the information in, it should be relatively easy to have your license reinstated. I'm in a two-month absolute bureaucratic travesty with MOT. I sent all the information in, in fact, added to it, and it's been two months, and because their scanner doesn't work properly... Are you serious? Their scanner is the excuse. <gasps> oh, my God. Go ahead. So, Please finish your story. Yeah, my, my whole irritation is the lack of any kind of, uh, you know, accountability for anything. So I have talked to six people and asked for a supervisor to call me, and I haven't as yet received any information from the supervisor. And I've, you know, it's just, it's just a travesty. There's no sense of consequence in anything anymore, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, all of the information and more is in their hands. I, it's just, you know, it's such an absolute upheaval. And then I can't have the common courtesy of getting a response. Mm-hmm. So I just thought the doctor, before any doctor, quite frankly, uh, institutes this, they have to really realize it's not as simple as what they write down on the paper or the, or the attitude that MOT uh, displays. They're required by law. Now, have you, do you have your doctor on side? Would that make it? Absolutely. I have a, a, not only a doctor, but a specialist as well. No, I, I, the documentation I've supplied is absolute no question. Well, um, and even they are getting frustrated with having to reword it, send it again. And now what I've done is I've faxed, I've mailed it, and I've emailed it. So if you can't read the information, out of those three avenues, what am I to do? Go to the office and stand there? Ugh. You know, and honestly, and the scanner was the excuse each time. Wow. Deborah, thanks for your call. And, uh, you know, keep listening. We're going to try to Excellent. get a little great. more on this. Thanks very much. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if that is even worse because of COVID. But, but again, uh, what I heard from people was that, 
you know, that it was a nightmare to try to get it reinstated. Uh, Dr. Profeta, we're out of time on this. What would you like to leave us with? Yeah, no, no, and just from that caller, I agree. I think, like, delays for administrative and bureaucratic reasons are, are definitely unfortunate. I, I, I would just balance it, and not, not to disagree with anyone in particular, but just balance with the fact that sometimes, you know, like, you do need longer times of, of stabilization with certain medical conditions and reports and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think we need to get our socks pulled up a little bit and, and, and start moving a little bit faster in the government realm. But I would just say uh, always to be safe. And if you're ever concerned, to have a chat with your doctor and, and trust their judgment when, when applicable. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Jason Perfetto. And uh, people, if you couldn't get through today, this is going to be a topic on Free For All Friday tomorrow for sure. So please call back. And right now we are going to take another break. We'll be back with a brand new survey on retirement, retirement and this record inflation that we've been having. And uh, it's got some important information. So stand by. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are you worried about having enough money in retirement? And how is the current record-breaking inflation affecting your thoughts on this question? A new survey polled both current and future retirees and found that both groups are worried about meeting day-to-day needs, let alone putting money aside. So what do you think? And has this latest round of the cost of everything going through the roof, is it is it making you worry? Numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now we're going to go to David Coletto, who is the CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data, which conducted the survey for the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan. David, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Fine, fine. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what would you say the bottom line on this? Is it just that this inflation is uh, causing havoc with plans that people have in place? Yeah, I think it's a perfect storm of a number of macroeconomic factors that are coming together to make people really anxious. I think inflation is probably the number one driver. Um, obviously, for, for younger Canadians, uh, still a, you know, a really unaffordable housing market puts further pressure on that because so many people have um, you know, thought of their, their, if you own a home, that home as an important uh, part of your retirement planning. Um, but if you are retired, um, you are increasingly thinking that you know, whatever savings you had or if you have a, um, you know, a, a pension, a workplace pension of any kind, that it may not be sufficient. And what we did learn is those who have a workplace pension, to get defined benefit contribution pension, they had the least um, anxiety around this because they knew that was tied to inflation and that, you know, that cost of living wasn't going to be as serious. But there is this clear, I think, shift in mind that over the last number of months um, that, that suggests we are headed into a really choppy period and inflation is the biggest driver of that. Well, you know, very few people these days have those uh, gold-plated pensions and even fewer will have it in the future. One of the things that struck me about the study is that, you know, when you looked at the main concerns people have, it wasn't that different for people who are currently retired and uh, people who were going to be sometime in the future. So uh, the the biggest concern for people, like 81% of retirees, uh, was, you know, meeting their day-to-day costs. Uh, that's pretty sobering. Um, the next thing was, you know, saving up for something they knew they would need. And I guess, well, uh, if you have to replace your boiler or your washing machine or whatever it is, and then this was a surprise to me for retirees because it used to be back in the day, you know, uh, you paid off your mortgage, you went into retirement debt-free. That was mm-hmm. a rule. And now we have a third of people who are concerned about paying off debt. Yeah. And I think I think a few things are happening. So first, to the first two, overwhelmingly, 
you know, particularly people who are retired, your, your income is more fixed. You, you can't easily deal with unexpected, um, you know, uh, expenses that are significant. And then now this fear of like five, six, 10, 11% increases in a lot of the things we need in our lives um, is, is, is constraining that, that household budget. So that, that is, yeah, you're right. That affects everybody. And, and regardless of your life stage or your age, um, that's a concern. But you, you do flag the third of, of retirees across the country who say, look, paying off my non-mortgage debt, paying rent, paying even my mortgage payments for, for a 13% was, was significant. One of the things we've learned from other research we've done, given the housing affordability crisis we've had, is a lot of retirees have taken on additional debt, whether that be refinancing their home, whether that be taking it, you know, debt from other places to help their kids get into yes, the housing market yes. or help their kids. You know, Bank of Mom and Dad, I think, has gone on longer uh, today than maybe it had in the past. And and so, you know, just because you are in your golden years and you, you, you've paid off your mortgage doesn't mean those that depend on you, who may be in their 30s, by the way, still depend on you. And and so I think it's complicated, um, that retirement picture for many people, which is why not everybody, but a significant number of retirees are thinking about their debt levels and have debt that they need to retire before they can truly retire and feel at ease. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, and I want to throw this question out to the audience, because one of the other things you asked people, you know, do you feel like you're falling behind? Or mm-hmm. are you getting ahead or, or treading water? So, uh, people, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And yeah, that's the question. Do you feel like you're falling behind, staying the same, or, uh, things are getting better? And, and the numbers here, uh, 37% felt like they were falling behind and 40% thought that they were staying the same. So, um, you know, I'm even wondering, wow, you know, if 23% think things are improving, that's not bad. But what do you make of that, David? Yeah, I think I think it, it reflects the kind of, as, as we've, we've heard before, this kind of two-sided economy that for some, um, and we saw in this survey, and, and I think one of the reasons that, that Hoop, um, the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, who did this survey, um, was interested in this is because many of their members have very, um, you know, good pensions and and, ben- and and feel secure because of that. If you look at those who say they feel like either they're, you know, staying about the same or getting ahead, it's because they have their retirement secured. And I, you know, and I agree, and I think Hoop agrees, more people outside of, you know, the public sector or other or certain industries that, that typically have these kind of workplace pensions should, should have them. And we need to be thinking about retirement security. I mean, the biggest story in this research, if, if, if you look at particularly younger Canadians, is this idea that they believe a retirement crisis is, is emerging and those who believe that has gone up significantly in the last year. And so as, a, as an economy, the country, I think, you know, in the midst of an affordability crisis, in the midst of a housing affordability crisis, when the economy is likely headed into a recession in the next, you know, year, um, these are big questions that, that are on people's minds. But um, and, and we see the clear evidence that if you have a secure, if you, if you planned and been able to plan your retirement well in advance, you don't feel the same kind of pressures. And well, I, I think, think it that's, was, that's an outcome I think we, we should strive, that everybody should be able to. Well, I, I, that's, it's, it's a nice idea, but in, in my humble opinion, it ain't happening. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it also seems to me it's not just people who, who had pensions, but, People who were in the market and it just the stock market, right? And it just kept going up and up and up and up and up, and suddenly, kaboom! It's it's dropped quite a bit. Yeah. And I think, so you're, you're you know, you have all of these 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 disruptions happening right now. It seems like you know we were on a good run for a while there, even if the pandemic the pandemic hit us for for a few months, but we were back on on track. And I think it you know the survey is a demonstration of. of the vulnerability that so many people have, and people who may not have otherwise thought they were vulnerable because their the value of their house they thought would would stay high for forever, or um, you know their income would be able to cover costs in an environment where inflation was always two to three percent. I'm 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 just I, I turned forty in December, right? And if you think about, it, I know, <laughs> I know boomers, 
Boomer Radio talks to my parents' generation. But think about the fact that you've got half of the Canadian population right now who've never lived through an inflationary period the same way my parents and many of your listeners have. And so that's going to have a profound effect on our politics, on our economy. And and so this survey, I think, puts a big spotlight on that. And and I think we have to kind of think about the the policy and, and economic choices we're going to make to help everybody get through this. Well, you know, that's that's a very good point. You know, they they haven't lived through, I mean, uh, uh, as a card-carrying boomer, I've, I've lived through a crash of real estate. Uh, so, uh, and lots of inflation and mortgages at, in, you know, double-digit mortgages. And I don't know, um, it, it actually, in a, in a weird way, might be, I wouldn't say good, but make people realize that, you know, what goes up must can come down or something like that. So uh, out of all of this, aside from if you can get a great pension, do so. <laughs> what is your uh, bottom line advice? Well, my advice is, I think, you know, that, that, that the first step is that we are becoming aware of it. Um, and, you know, it, it's a fairly overwhelming understanding of how quickly our economic situation has changed in Canada and around the world. And so as as we drive by, you know, those gas stations every day and they remind us just how expensive gas has become, um, I think we are starting to see the consumer, the individual start to reflect on, OK, so what do I have to do now in my day to day life to make this work? And and that's, I think, the bottom line is that that, you know, we are a resilient People will figure it out, but that um, our, our blood pressures are a little bit higher today than maybe they were a few a few months ago. Okay, well, uh, you know, it's a good reminder of uh, what we all have to do. Thank you so much, David Coletto. Thanks, Libby. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. And uh, that's all the time we have for today, people. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And if you couldn't get through or if there's something else that's on your mind, we will be talking about what you want to talk about tomorrow, Free For All Friday. We'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.